Welcome to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast, a look behind the scenes of the fly fishing world, featuring insight from guides and gear reps, conversation with resort managers, thoughts on entomology, discussions on fly patterns and destinations, and plenty of fish stories. Most importantly, it's an exploration of this lifelong journey we call fly fishing. Here is your host, Mark Hopley, with this episode of Fly Fishing 97. So welcome to this edition of Fly Fishing 97. Today we're pleased to welcome John Kent to the program. John's from uh, Roche Lake Resort just outside of Kamloops, British Columbia. John, thanks for uh, coming on the program. Oh, thanks for having me, Mark. So so tell me a little bit about uh, about your history. I, I've seen some of your amazing patterns on, uh, well, a lot of social media. I know you're a big time t- uh, fly tire, but Maybe you can tell us a little bit about your fly fishing history. Where where did it all start for you? It probably started up on Chadway Mountain, just outside of Merritt. We we used to live down at the bottom of the hill, and that's kind of uh, and friends kind of got me into the whole fly fishing thing, and then uh, it just kind of escalated from there. And then in 1991, we uh, got hired to manage uh, Tunkwa Lake Resort, uh, just. Uh, north of uh, Logan Lake, and that lasted for nine years, and then uh, we went to uh, seek our fame and fortune in Alberta, but that turned out to be a mistake. We went to work in the oil patch for eight years, and uh, yeah, well, we we, we just missed the uh, Kamloops area and all, all the opportunities for uh, fly fishing for trout around here. Well, I know so many speak so highly of you that I run into on the water back in the Tunkwa days, and I know obviously you, you got a new home now at, in uh, in Roche Lake. Yeah. But I mean, both those lakes—amazing, amazing waters and uh, great crawny fish. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's kind of uh, where my uh, fly fishing and fly tying escalated to was, uh, you know, trying to specialize a little bit more in coronamids than uh, you know other types of uh, fishing styles. Well, I can tell you, you definitely picked the right spot because uh, I had the pleasure of visiting with you, uh, what, last week. And I'll tell you what, I think I caught more fish, honest to God, in the last, we spent, uh, was it Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and a little bit of Thursday. And uh, I don't think I've caught that many fish in my life. Oh, it's, and, you know, it, it even just, it just kept going all through this weekend. And it, it makes the resort look pretty good when the fishing's that good. So what do you? What are the guys on right now? Are they still on black and gray, or is it something different? Um, it's uh, basically today it was uh, you know anti-static bag with a red or a brown rib. Gotcha. How, how deep? Still about six feet, or are they going deeper yet? Yeah, no, no. The fish are still for some reason they're still fairly shallow. You know, ten ten feet or less. Well, I got to confess, it was the first time I'd ever been on Roche. I'd never fished it. Heard heard so many good stories about it, and we just kind of. I, I get the feeling it's a lake where you got to kind of pick your spots. Yeah, yeah. You mean as for uh, timing? Yeah, as for timing and like, tell me a little bit about the lake. What amazed me sitting having a having a cold beverage in your in your bar there, um, just speaking with some of the old timers that know the lake really well, and they would know all the little areas. That, there's not many lakes that people say, well, this this flats and this this bay and this. Um, tell me a little bit about the resort area and the fishing. Uh, well. well the main difference between uh, the two lakes that we've managed is, uh, you know, Roche and Tonkwa is uh, Roche is just a bound with structure. And that, that's usually a key to, uh, to uh, where the, the fish are uh, congregating and, uh, you know, conducting their feeding cycles. 
And and whether it be uh, islands with uh, points or some of the big submerged rocks or just uh, the the uh, there, there's a lot of uh, severe drop offs here. Like right out in front of the lodge, it goes from uh, five or six feet, and you know it doesn't take long for it to reach thirty feet in depth. And there's always you know you know a good population of fish right along that drop off. They're on the shallow side of the drop-off, and then later in, in June, you'll find them on the deep side of the drop-off. What I found really interesting, John, is how the fish, and you, you mentioned the word cycled, they really cycled. Like the crony hatch seemed to start around 10 o'clock every day for us, and then they'd move, you know, the smaller guys would start, and then all of a sudden some of those big lunkers would move in off, off the deep water yeah, into the yeah, flats. exactly. So. This time of year, that that's a pretty uh, common practice. And, uh, yeah, the... the I think, and obviously I'm just guessing, but uh, just from past experience, those, those big fish, they, they stay in the deep water and they're eating uh, bloodworms during the pre-emergence. And then once the hatch gets intensified a bit, they, they move into the shallower water. It's interesting you say that because I, uh, I think a lot of us miss that window. You know what I mean? Kind of that pre-Karani hatch? Yes. Well, you know, I, I actually uh, learned that fishing, uh, the locals call it Island Lake, but its its official name is Big OK Lake. And going there uh, early in the morning and uh, fishing that pre-emergence with, uh, with bloodworms. Hmm. And, and, you know, a lot of times the fish are adjacent to drop-offs, but they're in deeper water. And, you know, uh, an example would be the last time I remember we were fishing 30 feet of water, but fishing bloodworms down 15 feet. That's interesting. So do, you, do they just get shaken up off the bottom and that's kind of like the, the, the kind of the pre-hatch hatch, if you will? Well, you know, I, I think they come off those, uh, and I, I would call them mid-shoals, you know, like uh, 14 or 15 feet where they've been, uh, you know, feeding on coronmids for the past uh, few days. And, uh, and when they come up off the drop-off, they don't uh, drop down into the deeper water. They just kind of stay at that... Uh, depth and then uh you know eat whatever bloodworms have uh migrated up and uh off the drop off and then once the uh, pu- pupa start uh, emerging then they move back onto the uh those mid shoals so john when you hit your home waters and you're out there where do you set the pin on your indicator normally right out of, right out of the, the gate again depends on the type of time of year i if it was this week then you know, I would probably target eight feet of water and set the uh, the pin at uh, six and a half feet. Yeah, that was that was our sweet spot for sure. But you know, we're talking early season fishing. We had a big high pressure system roll through. And uh, have you seen any mayflies or damsels popping uh, yet? No, no, haven't seen any yet. I'm I'm thinking once we get up to uh, sixty two degrees or so, then uh, you'll see some uh, some other uh, insects starting to come off. Maybe John, you can tell 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 us a little bit about your fly tying. Where did that all start? Was that from from the Chataway area? Did you get started well, back then? <laughs> it, it actually uh, the idea of I got to tie my own flies started uh, fishing um, Island or Big OK Lake, and it was oh my god, what year was it? It was like nineteen ninety or ninety one. And we were there, and uh, we actually fixed a guy's Volkswagen van who had been stuck there for a week. But, but he was a very good coronavirus fisherman, and uh, he was so appreciative of our help that uh, he gave us a dozen coronavirus. 
And uh, through the course of our trip, uh, we ended up with only two left at the end of the trip. So I took them into a fly shop and said, I need you to tie me four dozen of these flies. And uh, he said, okay, but the special order is $4 a fly. And this is, you know, back in 1990. That's big bucks. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and uh, when he gave me the flies, I said, what the heck? These don't look anything like the flies I gave you. He goes, oh, well, they're close enough. <laughs> <laughs> I, I get the feeling I'm talking to a tying perfectionist. Close enough is not close enough. So, so anyways, uh, Gill's Fishing Tackle in uh, Langley, B.C., which was the shop I used to shop at all the time. They, uh, they had a fly tying uh, course going on, and it was a six-week course, and it was being taught by Harold Lohr, who was the uh, one of the reps for Red Elm. And uh, so I took his course, and uh, as soon as I had done the course, I, of course, all gung-ho to tie flies, and I took right. some, some of my flies into gills, and they just suggested I start selling them there. I think that's some good advice because obviously it's one of your main passions that when I see your flies and, and I did pick some up uh, from the resort and I'm, I'm treasuring those. I, I haven't tied them on yet, to be honest with you. I, I, I will at some point, but they, a lot of the patterns I noticed you had are fairly decent size and I haven't seen any big crumbs yeah, pulling well, off yet. And you know, it's been a little bit sporadic, but um, you know, a few days before you arrived um, up at the top end in Carl's Flats, which is, you know, well known for its big fish and shallow water. Um, there was about 20 boats in there the one day, and uh, most of the guys told me they were uh, all using size 12, 2X long. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, I was using 16s, but I will say this they wouldn't touch it if it was a white bead. It needed to have the black bead with the gill. It's funny how that goes sometimes. Yeah, and, and maybe it's just cyclical. I, I don't know. I'm sure later on that changes. Well, well you know, uh, when we were at Tonquois, they used to have the uh, bomber hatch in August, which is, you know, big size 10, size 8 coronamids that have a two-year life cycle. And, uh, you know, the first day, the fish were all gung-ho for those uh, those flies, and, and you could get away with fishing white beads. Two or three days into the same hatch, they would, they wouldn't touch it. And in fact, uh, you're absolutely right. It, it was a black or a brown bead. That's all that would Sometimes work. Sometimes I think you just got to show them something different. But hey, um, so in your tying right now, what, what are you tying at the bench these days? Or If I was sitting down to tie right now, it would be probably Karanwids for about the next month. So given the fact that at some point in the future, you will have some time to sit at the bench. If somebody wants to get a hold of your flies, um, how do they do that? Uh, just by calling me at the lodge. Uh, it's area code 250-828-2007. And same goes for if somebody wants to get out and uh, spend some uh, time at your uh, beautiful resort there and uh, maybe book a, a chalet, uh, same phone number, or they, they can find you online? Uh, yep, exact same phone number. And uh, I... And we also do offer a guide service. I am a, I'm a licensed guide, and last winter I just got my park use permit. Because we're in a provincial park, you have to have a permit to conduct a business inside the park. And we're doing, doing that through the resort as well. And so the resort website, John, is? www.rochelake.com. Perfect. Um, I got to ask you this, any, any crazy fishing stories? You've been doing this a, a lot of years. You must have seen some pretty pretty crazy things out there on the water. <laughs> yeah, we've seen a few. Um, Can anything, not to put you on the spot, but anything that uh, John comes to mind? 
nothing that really comes to mind except for you know we're we're kind of on the at the same elevation kind of on the same uh thompson nicola plateau that tunk was on and uh they have the uh the freshwater variation of sea lice these freshwater lice they can't get through the protective slime on the fish so they they try and go into the gills and uh and what happens is you see fish coming four feet out of the water and slamming down on their sides and just trying to shake these and uh we had a girl who was uh about a seven year old girl and she just wanted to catch a fish off the dock and they were here for a week and i was trying and she everything i knew and i just couldn't get her a fish and then one one of these, it happened to be about a 22-inch trout. It was doing doing the thing, you know, trying to shake the lice, and it landed right on the dock beside her. And she just she just pounced on it like it was a treasure. And uh, and then she had it, she had the death grip on it with both hands, and came running up and said, "John, John, can I keep this fish?" <laughs> so she caught it with her hands. Oh yeah, it was just a funny story. Let me ask you, who's been the most influential person well, in your fly fishing career? You know, uh, I mean, it's, it's a good opportunity for name dropping. So uh, obviously Brian Chan. You know, we we were at uh, Tunko for nine years, and he was our uh, biologist at the time. And uh, you know, we 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 would uh, spend some time together in the winter when they would come up to check the oxygen readings, and we'd go over each other's flies and uh, and. No, he's he's just the guru of stillwater fly fishing in the Kamloops area, and uh, and nothing but good happens the more time you spend with Brian. Yeah, I get that feeling. So you shared a, obviously a shoal or two with Brian over over the years. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, and uh, you know, I, I used to go uh, to the parklands of Manitoba every spring with uh, Phil Roley for about uh, five or six years. Nice. And uh, and yeah, we. We became friends through those trips, and uh, yeah, he's he's been quite influential as well. And then the uh, the writings of Jack Shaw, yeah, you know, he, I mean, he he's the guy who taught uh, Brian to tie flies, and uh, you know, just just reading that uh, Ralph Shaw wrote a book based on Jack's uh, diaries, and it was called The Pleasure of His Company. And it was, it was a very interesting read for me because it was just all based on the lakes in the Kamloops region. Yeah. Well, it's 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 so close to home, right? I think that Jack Shaw book, was it Fly Fish the Trout Lakes? I think that's one of the first books I ever, ever, ever owned in fly fishing. Yeah. I, I actually, I, I remember we were uh, managing a motel in Cash Creek, B.C. And I walked into a gas station. They had uh, a rack of books and it was uh, a book by Jack Shaw, Tying Flies for Trophy Trout. Right. Yeah. And that, that book was uh, very influential for me too. Awesome. It's funny. And it's funny how it comes full circle, right? You look back and now with the internet and all these things, I don't see a lot of these books around, but when I do, I, I sure pick them up. Yes. Yes. And some of those older books, like uh, I, I see them for guys putting them up for sale on social media, like I forget what uh, Brian's little blue book was called, but it's not even in publication anymore. But it, I think they, you could buy it for 10 bucks when it was available in the stores, and now guys are getting 50 or $60 for it on on eBay or wherever. Yeah. That's awesome. Hey, well, I just want to switch gears on you. Uh, do you still have a minute? I know, you're, I know you're busy this weekend, but 
Um, what I'm curious about is what do you tie on? T- tell me a little bit about your the vice that you use. Okay, I, I use a, uh, a Renzetti presentation, and it's, uh, it's, it's one of Renzetti's top vices. And uh, I, I can justify the price because, uh, well, damn it, I tie a lot of flies. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. So yeah. what do you like yeah. about the Renzetti? That's a full rotation yeah, it's, it's a rotary vice, and uh, the jaws are just top-notch. You know, be- best jaws I've seen in the industry as far as... And believe me, I, I have tried them all. And, uh, and, and yeah, it, it, it never lets me down. I, I guess that's the best thing. Well, and you can tie real small flies. You can tie real big flies with that vice, too. Yes, yes, you can go from... Yeah, yeah you, you can tie down to uh, 24s if you're that insane i'm looking at the same vice on my desk here so i i i feel you that's that's it's a great vice and you know what that that's so important if if you do any tying when i mean i had one of those thompson vices and those things are bulletproof they're like a tank you have them for years but if you want to tie really small flies it's all about the tool isn't it yeah oh oh you're absolutely right and you know i'm just uh i'm anal about my scissors i'm anal about my bobbin holders See, this is, okay, I want to dig deeper on this. What are you using for scissors? What are you using for bobbin? Uh, scissors are Dr. Slick, and they're uh, a okay. fine uh, razor point. You know, tying a lot of coronids, you want something with a really fine point. And, uh, and short scissors. You know, some guys will just buy anything, but, uh, you know, I search out those three-and-a-half-inch scissors and just just basically because but coronids are, you know, probably 80% of what I tie. Have you tried any of these new bobbins, like the Widow and all those? I have, but but you know what? I I'm still using. I still keep going back to the uh, that Griffin, the old Griffin bobbin, and it's got it's got the ceramic insert, and uh, yep. you know I'm looking at my uh, tool carousel right now, and I have probably six different bobbins that I paid probably over 60 bucks for each one, and they've just been retired to the carousel. <laughs> so wh- I'm going to ask you this. What makes you retire one? Just busting the thread halfway through a through a fly, and you're like, oh, man, that's gone. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, you know, uh, I forget what those bobbins are called, but... Uh, I got, you know what I picked up um, down at the Fly Fishing Show down in... Uh, uh, Seattle area. I got one. It was one of those right bobbins, and I'm loving that. It's got this. Yeah, that's the name I was trying to think of. And and they are, they are good bobbins because obviously you can use whatever spool you want, and you can adjust the tension, right? And uh, the only thing is getting used to that open end. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. Yeah, I kind of like it. Oh yeah, yeah. I I definitely don't have anything bad to say about the right bobbins. I'm actually looking at one that was. I think it was. It's made by Stonful. Okay. And it's uh, it's the same thing as the right bobbin, but it's uh, just just designed a little bit different. Well, I'm trying to think. I, I've got one here that I've used for probably 35 years, and I don't even know if they make them anymore. It's like it's like a spool off a sewing machine. You know the one I'm talking about? Yeah. Yep, I do. I love it. It, it the thing's bulletproof, but it has started. I've used it for so long; it started to bust the thread. And I, I picked up this right bob, and I was like, "Wow, this is a game changer!" Yeah, yeah, it's amazing when when you get a, a, a new tool that uh, just uh, serves every purpose that you're looking for. What about whip finish? What do you use for that? I just use the cheap old uh, Matarelli. Yep, 
Yeah, I don't, I don't see any reason to change. How's about beads on your crownies? You using tungsten? You using uh, brass? You using glass? What are you using? Uh, I'm using everything. Um, I, I do use tungsten, but you know, when when I'm designing uh, flies that are made for later in the, the end of May, the the fish will go down 25 to 30 feet. Right. And uh, they'll still be feeding on coronamids, and uh, so the 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 larger coronamids that I tie for those times are uh, always with uh, tungsten, and uh, I, I do use a lot of brass uh, for uh, shallow water fishing, and uh, and glass for I mean the original pumpkin head uh, it was tied with glass, and I, I still use it, and you know I. I still like to fish uh, Brian's um, uh, ruby-eyed leech, which has uh, a glass bead in behind the uh, the cone head. Yeah, yeah, I know it well. You got to tell me your top five flies that you've come up with. Oh, obviously the pumpkin head has to be number one. Yeah, it's it's my claim to fame, I guess. Well, you should embrace that. What what else? I know you got a couple. Of, I, I I you know what? What was that? The hog magnet. I was amazed by that fly when that. When I first saw that. Oh, the hog magnet. Yes. Yes. That, that thing, uh, right, right up till about mid June, it, it's tough to beat that fly. Cause it's basically the origin of that fly was, uh, Brian was, uh, Brian Cham was, uh, judging a fly tying contest and I wanted to come up with a new fly for the contest. So I basically just took a chromie with a red rib and put a, uh, a strip of red holographic up the back. I've caught I caught a lot of big fish on that. I got to tell you, John. Yeah, that that fly. It's just uh, you know I, I I don't know. Well, obviously I do know because I I think it's because of the uh, the fish. Uh, they love to uh, take bloodworms, and uh, I think having you know the chromie with the red. There's lots of red in that fly, and it's got a red bead and red back. Yeah. And, well, you're looking at. Well, I think when you have that little bit of flash and you're representing that hemoglobin, uh, chances are you got a pretty good recipe yeah. for success. And besides that one, um, the one that's uh, really worked the past uh, three or four days here was a, a pattern I designed at Tonkwa, and it's called the Copper Top. Right. And it's just, uh, it's usually a dark brown translucent material, whether it be scud back or uh, buzzer wrap over top of red holographic tinsel. And when the fly gets wet, that red kind of bleeds through. And I'm pretty sure the past few days here that uh, the fish have been taking it for a bloodworm. That's something, too. You just hit on something that I found when I was up there. I was talking to a couple of guys. And just because we think we're fishing coronamids, a lot of times those trout are taking them as maybe shrimp, maybe mayflies. Depends on the color, the size. Yeah, I can give you a perfect example from Tonkwa Lake. And that was one fall. And it was mid-September, and it, the fishing was very frustrating because the fish were just, every fish that got caught by trollers was uh, absolutely full of uh, hyalella shrimp. And uh, anyone who doesn't fish uh, the interior still waters, there are, there's two different kinds of shrimp here. The gamma shrimp, which are much larger, and the hyalella, which usually don't get above a size 16. The, the guy I was fishing with, he put on a... Uh, basically a size 16 green coronamid that was tied with dubbing and he just started nailing fish every cast and that that, that was it they were they, they were on shrimp but uh, that uh, coronamid looked close enough that uh, you know he had a good day 
I can think of days on Jacko and days on Sawmill and days on some of these lakes where I, I think I'm fishing chronomids, but uh, in in reality, all of a sudden the mayflies started to pop, and I went, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, well, 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 that's it exactly. And uh, you know, per- another example is Morgan Lake because I, I have a pattern called the Dragon Lake Special, which is kind of uh, a ginger body and it has a rusty brown thorax. And Morgan Lake has incredible uh, Calabatus mayfly hatches and. Uh, I can almost guarantee that the, the fish are mistaking that coronamid for a mayfly. Second best day, John, I've ever had in my life. Karani fishing was with that pattern of yours. Dragon Lake Special, yeah. That's the one. And uh, I, it, there was a mayfly hatch going on, and it was every cast. Yeah, yeah. I'm, <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty incredible. And, it, you know, that, that it, it's a very good point that, you know, a lot of times we do think we're fishing coronamids, and... Uh, you know, sometimes the fish just aren't targeting that, but uh, you have the right color combination and uh, the right size, and that's about all it takes. Yeah. Hey, if you could change one thing about fly fishing, what would it be? Um, droppers. <laughs> Every other province in the country, you know, you can fish one rod and you can fish droppers. Okay. And, uh, you know, I... Well, we we spent eight years in Alberta, and we fished droppers there, and uh, then all the springs I spent in Manitoba. It just you know, it it just uh, in my opinion, it it cuts the uh, the figuring out of the puzzle. Yeah, you know, trying to figure out what the fish are taking at what depth. I mean, if you're alone in the boat, you can fish two rods, a plot one fly on each rod. I'm, I don't understand why you can't fish one rod. Ah, with that's two a good flies. point. I never looked at it that way. I would argue this: I got a, I got enough of a hard time with a twenty foot leader and one coronamid. You throw another fly in the mix, I think it's a total gong show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't know what your coronamid setups like, but I, I always fish with swivels three feet above the fly yeah, three feet that's the magic number that for me it is you know everyone you know some people say 18 inches some people say two feet i just three feet above the fly gives you ample opportunity to change the fly over and over again if you need to well i was just gonna that's you read my mind because i start out at three but in reality i end up at probably like uh you know six eight inches yeah and when when i was in alberta you know we used to just tie the dropper uh tip it off that swivel Okay. Which, which made it very easy. I just I just see a little bit of wind kicking up, and man, that'd be ugly. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Anyone who says they haven't had a dropper tangle up in their uh, their main fly is uh, lying. <laughs> so your ideal setup on, on your home waters is, uh, I assume, a, a longer rod, John? Yeah. I'm, and, I, again, Mark, it comes down to personal preference, but I, I wouldn't fish coronamids with anything less than a 10-foot rod. Yeah, totally so. I totally agree. No, so, and then you're fishing swivels. What kind of indicators do you like to fish? Um, I, I'm not really preferential to uh, one brand or another, but uh, I like big indicators. Round, egg shape, pear shape? Preferably round. I find that the egg shape, if you're using a bigger indicator, it tends to uh, drag too much water when you're trying to pull it off to recast. And then, so are you using fluorocarbon, are you using Maxima? What are you using for, what's your leader setup look like? If I'm uh, varying the depth that I'm fishing, if I'm if I if I have a 15 foot leader, then usually the first uh, six feet is mono, and then the rest is fluorocarbon. But if I'm fishing uh, like later in May when the fish go to 30 feet, it'll just be all fluorocarbon. You know, anything that can help that fly sink quicker. Yeah, so that's when you're pulling out the tungsten beads, probably too, right? Yes, yes. 
tungsten beads, swivel, split shot, you, <laughs> you name it. There, there, there is no uh, gentle presentation when you're uh, fishing not much of a leader. So you're just about to whip finish Cronmit in your vice. What are you coating it with? Um, UV resin. Um, and it's, you know, I, I swear by the uh, Deer Creek vine. Yeah, it, it never lets me down. Like I say, I've used them all. and I'm not going to badmouth any brand. But, uh, I, you know, there's there's only two I use, Deer Creek Pine and Bug Bond is another one that came over from Europe. And yeah. uh, it, it seems to dry quite quite nicely and uh, not tacky at all. Um, I, you know what I am trying right now, though, is a Loon, but it's like, I think it's called Flow. It's a real thin one. Uh, that That's another one I would recommend. Yeah, I quite like it. Because I actually, it was actually Phil Rowley who first gave me a ball of flow because I, I think he's a pro staff with Loon. Yeah. And he said, no, no, try it. Try it on your coronavirus because every other uh, UV resin that I use from uh, Loon just, you know, was like you said, it was tacky. You ever try Sally Hansen? Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, I, I, should, I should own part of that company. <laughs> You don't you don't use it anymore or what? Uh, oh yeah, I'm, I'm looking at a bottle right now. Yeah. It's sitting right beside the UV resin. So is that the ultimate shield or what's the brand? Yeah, yep, Sally Hansen's. Um, yeah, when when I was having issues with the UV resin, uh, once I dried it, I was put a coat of Sally Hansen's over top. You know, if you're ever worried about tackiness, uh, then that that's that's the way to go. Well, that's the one thing I noticed when I picked up some of your cronies that uh, you tied there at the resort. They're they're very heavy and they're very slick. You know, they want to sink. Yeah, that's that's the whole game right there is getting them down to where the fish are as quick as you can. You ever use crazy glue? Yes, I've uh, I've used crazy glue. Do you find it affects the color though? Um, you, you really have to be careful. Um, I've, I've I've made some mistakes with crazy glue, and you know, as far as the thread body patterns go i wouldn't use crazy glue because it darkens it up too much um that dragon lake special the, the color is very important that uh, light ginger color so is this the first year that you've had the resort uh we actually took over managing uh august 14th last year okay but this is the first spring Right. So what what have you what have you learned so far on on Roche Lake versus Tonkwa? Like uh, is it is it a similar clientele? Is it a tell me your thoughts on that? Um yeah, it's, it's you know, you wouldn't guess it based on how many boats you see on Tonkwa on long weekends, but uh Roche is a busy lake. Yeah, I was I was blown away actually with how many boats there were in certain areas of the lake. Yes. Yes. Uh well, the conservation officer was out uh 2 weeks ago. And he said he went up to Carl's Flats, and he, which is not a big area. It might be uh, five or six acres, and he, he counted 47 boats. So, I mean, and what are those guys looking for right now? Obviously, barbless flies on Roche and uh, safety kits. Single barbless hooks. They're looking for uh, boat operator cards. They're looking for, yeah, they're definitely inspecting the safety kits. That's a good thing, though, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's one thing that I know a lot of people have been negligent of. Over, and I saw it when I, when I, I had to laugh. And I, look, I looked behind your counter, and I've never seen so many boat kits in my life, like safety kits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, we actually, uh, one of our customers got stopped by the conservation officer yesterday. And, uh, you know, he didn't have a boat operator card, but we have a waiver they sign when they want to rent a boat. And uh, the waiver cover, covers everything, and uh, the conservation officer told him he was he was impressed that the guy had everything on the boat that he needed, and 
you know, the safety kit had everything. And, uh, so when somebody comes to the resort, then they can, they can rent one of your boats too. So you actually can drive up there basically in your truck and you're good to go. Yes. Yes. It, uh, you can basically come to Roche with nothing but your fishing gear. And, uh, you know, if, if so desired, everything can be provided. You know what I couldn't get over was, uh, it's pretty dark in that neck of the woods. And when the sun went down, I could, I hadn't seen that many stars in quite some time. It's funny when you when you get away from the street lights and uh, any source of light. Uh, yeah, it uh, yeah some some summer nights it's it's just amazing how many stars there are in the sky. John, I, I want to thank you for your time. I really appreciate it and uh, learned a lot from you today. And uh, I want to thank you again for uh, for looking after the gang up at Roche Lake. You know, hopefully we'll see you out in the water soon. Yes, I would love to see someone out in the water. <laughs> are you saying you're not getting out a lot? Uh, I, well, I, I was out, uh, I actually put my boat in the water to, uh, put the docks in and, uh, we, we had that weekend at the end of April with, uh, Brian Chan and Phil Rowley and, uh, I managed to, uh, get out and guide, uh, a couple guys in that group. So it's not like I haven't been out. It's just, uh, I haven't been out during the good Karanu fishing that you guys have been enjoying during the last week, week and a half. Well, the unfortunate thing is that's probably your busiest time of the year, I would imagine. Yes, absolutely. Thanks again. That's John Kent from Roche Lake Resort just outside of Kamloops, British Columbia. Thanks for listening to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Your feedback matters. Let us know if there's a person or topic you would like to hear on the show. Email us at mark at flyfishing97.com. Until next time, tight lines and we'll see you on the water.